But right now we're going to read the Bible, and it's something we do every single week at City Light because we believe that it is through the Bible that God speaks to us and we can understand what God is like. And so we're going to be reading from a part of the Bible called the book of Matthew, starting at Matthew 17. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to Matthew chapter 17. It'll also be on the screen behind me as well. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the um, lead pastor here. It's great to have you with us at City Light this morning. And, um, and same as Jacob was saying before, thanks for being here on the long weekend and taking the time out. Um, diving into the question of the search for wonder, I think it will be really worth your while whether you are a follower of Jesus or you yourself would describe yourself maybe as a little bit skeptical or not very spiritual or however it is you would describe yourself. Because I think it is something that all of us deep down are desiring. And so I wanted to start this week just a little bit differently. I wanted to start by just taking a quick survey of everyone here, if that's okay. I, I guess I'm not really asking. I'm going to do it anyway. But you don't have to participate, I guess, is what I'm saying. How many people here have been on a roller coaster? Okay, great. So maybe one, sorry if, if you feel a little bit left out of that, if you're like the one or two who haven't. How many people here have been scuba diving? I haven't. Okay, a few. How many have been caving? Is that what you kind of call it? Were you, were you going to those claustrophobic, like, you know what I'm talking about, that sort of thing? Okay, a few. How many people here have been bungee jumping? I have. How many here have been skydiving? Okay, a fewer number. It's interesting as you take the sample of this group, that, that between us all, that's quite, that's quite a few who've engaged in these kind of activities. Now, part of the reason these things haven't existed throughout time is because of the technology needed to actually be able to do them. But I also think it's a reasonably recent historical thing to actually want to do these things. Why is it that we who say we value our lives want to do so many things to endanger them? Why is it that we actually, in every way, are trying to get as close to death as possible? In fact, I was watching a, a, a big wave surfing documentary called Heavy Water. And um, one of the main guys that they're interviewing on this, who's been surfing big waves for almost his entire life, said that the reason that he does it is he wants to get as close to death as possible and then just escape at the last second. That is the whole point of big wave surfing. And more than some of the other activities I've described, it's one of the ones that can genuinely claim your life. So he's not mucking around. They're playing with live ammunition. Why is it that we want to kind of get as close to death as possible while at the same time saying that we all want to preserve our lives? I would put it to you that it's because we're bored. That actually we want to feel alive. And a brush with death that you actually survive makes you feel as alive as we possibly can because most of the time we actually feel quite numb. That it's the case that as a culture maybe, 
We've grown quite bored and we're looking for experiences that would make us feel very much alive. And so adrenaline sports and these kind of activities have, have suddenly taken on a huge prevalence because there's something that we're looking for beneath that. Because the truth is, overall, we aren't just bored moment by moment bored. I think we are, in the broader sense, life bored. And the reason for it is because our whole worldview is based around the self. Walker Percy, who is a kind of a, an essayist and an author, he wrote that boredom is the self stuffed with the self. Does that sort of make sense? Boredom is the self stuffed with the self. When you're at the point when all you can think about is yourself and it's kind of life around you is just pushing you back onto yourself, that's when we kind of hit boredom. And there's a reason why I think more broadly, culturally, we, are at a st- we are experience a state of, I guess we'd call it, life boredom. See, in 1892, Friedrich Nietzsche, who is a poet and philosopher, declared that God is dead. Now, when he said that, he wasn't imagining that there was once a God who was alive, who has now died. What he was expressing was that culturally, as he looked around him in whatever it was at the time, Prussia, not Germany, but as he looked around him, he saw that people had like a kind of a nominal faith, but ultimately, that God was dead. That is, that God really wasn't going to have any significant impact on our lives. That if there was a God, even if he did exist, and he didn't believe that he did, that really he was culturally irrelevant. And it's true that as a Western culture, we have moved away from God. That the center of our worldview is not based around some divine being, some God. And over time, things actually progressed. See, at at that time, when Nietzsche was alive, the belief was that meaning and understanding of life wasn't really going to come from God anymore, but actually man himself would become the measure of all things. Humankind would be the center of reality. But at that time, culture believed that this was kind of a a broader humankind project, that we ourselves, through science and progress, would actually be able to find the answers and meaning to life. And so the belief was there was a real confidence in the advance of science and of our intellect and of humankind, and that that was where the future would be. But two world wars later, and a whole bunch of other disappointing experiences, and we actually retreated further into the self. There was a shift that took place. Instead of believing that humankind would discover the meaning of reality, we started to look to ourselves. And so what was born was the worldview of self. And with this came an explosion of literature about the self. This was a huge transition. And with it came a whole new vocabulary. Self-worth, self-esteem, self-discovery, self-understanding, self-satisfaction, self-help, all of these things are historically relatively new. In fact, you can do a, a Google Ngram search where it will, and look, I, I don't know how well catalogued all these things are, but you can graph a particular phrase and its emergence in literature. And you can see from the 50s onwards, the idea of self-help or whatever, before that was almost non-existent. And then there's ex- explosion in literature. There is so much about self-worth, self-esteem, and all these things. And so with this came a shift in how we understand reality. For the first time in human history, we believe that the answers would be found in ourself, in, the, in, our, in our own selves. And so what this meant was a shift in how we related to the world around us. Instead of believing that the world was kind of a window through to a greater reality, some transcendent supernatural reality like God, instead the world became not a window but a mirror reflecting information back to us about ourselves. C.S. Lewis gives a really practical illustration of the shift and how subtle it is. But think of it this way. Imagine you take a trip to a waterfall and someone says, the waterfall is sublime. 
He says that can mean two things. If you believe that the objective world, the world outside of us, is kind of a window to a greater reality, what you mean is that there is something about this waterfall that makes it beautiful in and of itself. But to say the waterfall is sublime in another way could mean, well, the way, the way this waterfall makes me feel, it gives me a certain feeling, and that's what makes it significant. And that's the shift. We go from this thing is beautiful in and of itself to actually this thing makes me feel a certain way, and that's what makes it significant. And this is the shift in worldview that we've had. We've moved from this idea that the world is a window through to a greater reality to actually it's a mirror reflecting me back to myself. It tells me about myself. And this plays out in some really practical ways as well. Social media is probably one of the clearest ways that we see this kind of shift in worldview reflected to us. It changes the way that we experience the natural world. Every year for the last maybe 10 years, but my wife's been going there for almost 30 years, we've headed to the south coast, in particular to Jovis Bay. But probably in the last, I'd say probably the last four years it's been most noticeable, is that the reason for travelling to the south coast used to be that these are some of the, the most beautiful beaches in the world. Like the claim for one of the beaches in particular is that it has the whitest sand in the world. So the idea is I go there to observe something beautiful. But now what you see is people will go there and not even go in the water because what they'll be doing is getting their friend to take photos of them because it's become a spot or a venue to get a photo of. And so it's an interesting shift because going there is not so much about experiencing a natural wonder as actually having a kind of a photo of you that can demonstrate that I'm a person that goes to places of natural wonder. And that shift is subtle, but it's huge. It happens not just with natural things like, the, the, uh, like creation, but also with other things like food. We have a friend of ours who works in the fashion industry who's saying that oftentimes they'll go out to dinner at incredibly expensive restaurants, and they're eating, they're eating food made by some of the most skilled chefs in the world. And oftentimes the meals will go unfinished because people are so busy photographing them. And so again, rather than the enjoyment of the food being the thing that you're there for, it's actually to demonstrate I'm a person that goes to trendy restaurants. Not only that, but it can happen just in everyday life. Social media can take you out of just a normal experience and start to reflect it back on yourself. There have been times when we've been playing with the kids and we're away even this week in the country. And the sun was setting and we're on top of a hill and all of the kids and our friends' kids were playing together and the kind of light was sort of dancing through their hair and the thought flashed through my mind. So I was in, I'm, in, I'm in the experience, I'm enjoying just being there and thankful for it and then suddenly the thought pops into my head like, this would make a great photo. And suddenly it pulls you out of the experience and now you're kind of looking back at yourself in this experience. There's a shift in how we relate to the world. Now I don't want to overstate it, I'm not saying anyone who ever uses social media is entirely just self-reflective because all of us, it's, 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 you know, it's a spectrum of experiences. But there has been a change in how we relate to the world. And the idea is that the self is the central point of reference. That how I understand the world is it tells me things about myself. And so with this, it's meant that we've become ravenous for new experiences. We long for new experiences that make us feel new things. New music, new fragrances, new clothes, new countries in which to find new music, new fragrances and new clothes, new technology, new narratives. We consume stories at an absolute rate, don't we? Just to give you some context for how things have changed, growing up in high school, I was a skateboarder 
And skate videos came out, there was maybe a couple a year that would come out. And when you wanted to get one, you had to go to General Pants, which had a skate section at that time, and you would go and get a VHS tape. And it would cost you about 45 bucks. So you'd have to save up for this. And there'd be like two or three really good ones that would drop every year. And then you'd go home and you would smash that thing until lines were just going through it, right? You'd watch the same thing over and over again. In fact, because of that, there are certain songs now that I can't listen to without visualizing the actual skate part, right? I can remember particular tricks at particular spots. So you'd get one video and just watch it over and over. But now, content is dropping so often that you don't have time to go back. You watch something and then you move on. And it's the same with the stories that we enjoy. We feel stressed about going back over an old book. We're like, there's so many new things. I need to get on to the next thing. And this is all due to the worldview of self. We want new experiences. And with this has come a new self-consciousness. We are more self-conscious than other cultures in the world. We think about ourselves and our actions more than others. If you've ever had to do public speaking, it may have been one of those moments where you, for the first time, realize you didn't know what you did with your hands the rest of your life. Because suddenly, when other people are looking at you, you're thinking about every action. All of Australia's top phobias are social phobias. We think about ourselves and our actions and rethink and think over them a lot. And this is not by accident. This is part of the worldview of self that we're born into and a part of. And it is having an impact on our lives. It's having an impact on how we experience the world around us and it's numbing us to the world around us. Christopher Lash is a cultural historian and he read a book that it's, it's, it's interesting because he loves throwing about heavy opinions. It probably overcooks it a little bit. But he talks about um, the modern, what he would call, and he is a cultural historian and a psychologist, but the modern psychosis of narcissism. But he explains narcissism in this way. He says, The narcissist can function in the everyday world and is often very charming. However, his devaluation of others, together with a lack of curiosity about them, impoverishes his personal life. With little capacity for detachment, the narcissist must depend on others for constant infusions of approval and admiration. At the same time, his fear of emotional dependence, together with manipulative, exploitive approaches to personal relationships, makes these relationships bland, superficial, and deeply unsatisfying. The narcissist tends to be bored and restlessly in search of instantaneous intimacy, looking for emotional stimulation without involvement. And he would say this condition, that really is isolated to a very small part of the population, as we become more and more about the worldview of self, becomes more and more a part of our experience. The sense that we need constant new stimulation, the sense of boredom, and the sense of disconnection from others in the world around us. And because of this, we try to escape it. It's not pleasant to feel bored, to be the self stuffed with the self. So we look for things that are going to take us out of ourselves. And one of the most common things, returning to where we started, is we look for intense experiences. We look for things that give us an intense physiological reaction. Have you noticed that gore or slasher films have a, have a kind of a tendency to get gruesome, more and more gruesome? Because it takes more and more to shock us. And we want that response, that initial fear response. It's the same with other things. When sport's not enough, we add adrenaline to the mix. We put death in the mix to make it more interesting. When watching sports isn't enough, we introduce betting and gambling because it ups the stakes and gives us an adrenaline shot. Not only that, but with drugs, there's the phenomenon called chasing the dragon. That is, 
the first high you experience seems to elude you for the rest of your life. So you add more and more drugs or harder and harder drugs in order to get that first experience back, but it keeps getting away from us. And you could go on and on, but it leads to this condition that Christopher Lash described of having all of these experiences that eventually we just do them and we feel numb about it. We want something. And what we want is something to break into our world. We want something to break us out of our mirrored cage and to break through and give us an experience of something that's genuinely other. We are looking for something to break us out of the worldview of self. Something more real and more significant than ourselves. Something that will make us feel small but in a good way. Something that will right-size us in the universe. See, why is it that narratives like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings are so popular even right till today? Why is it that things like crystals have had a resurgence? It's because we want a genuine encounter with something else. The idea that there might be a greater reality out there that we could encounter is appealing to us because we are so caught in this worldview of self. What we want, really, ultimately, is an encounter with God. Someone to shatter all of our categories and to take us out of ourselves. Have an experience with someone who is other, who is unique. In a chapter in his book, Making Sense of God... There is a chapter called Atheism with a Wild God. It's written by Tim Keller. And he talks about the experience uh, that religious people talk about when they talk about encountering God. And he explains it in this way. He says, Sometimes one experiences a fullness in which the world suddenly seems charged with meaning, coherence, and beauty that break in through our ordinary sense of being in the world. Some who experience this know unavoidably that there is infinitely more to life than just physical health, wealth, and freedom. There is a depth and wonder and some kind of presence above and beyond ordinary life. It may make us feel quite small and even unimportant before it, and yet also hope-filled and unworried about the things that usually make us anxious. This is ultimately what we're longing for. At the bottom of the desire for new experiences and even new adrenaline rushes, ultimately, is that we would encounter a God who is both good and yet untamed something to crash through into our reality. And the good news of the gospel is that this God can actually be known and has actually crashed through into our reality. That God himself has entered into human history. And the, the reading that Jacob read out before from Matthew 17 is about a group of Jesus' disciples, a bunch of men who had followed him around his whole life and ministry and who encountered him in a unique way. And I'm going to pick up the story from sentence 1 in chapter 17. In Matthew 17, we read this. It says, And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Now when it comes to the life of Jesus, there are two indisputable, indisputable facts about him. One is that he existed, and two is that he had an outsized impact on human history. Now, whether you are religious or not, those are two agreed-upon facts. But the Bible goes beyond that in terms of who Jesus was. The claim is not that Jesus was just an extraordinary person, but that he was God and man. And in this story here in Matthew 17, Jesus gives his followers a glimpse into what he is really like. We're told there that he takes with him just three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. 
They come with him to a mountain, and while they're there with him, he is transfigured. That is, he is transformed. And here is where the language kind of struggles to describe what it was that they experienced. It says here that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes were as white as light. And so they're trying to describe an experience where it seems like Jesus' appearance was so transformed that they, they weren't actually, they're not sure quite how to explain what they were seeing. But we know that they were terrified. They had an encounter with God. And not only that, but we're told here that they were actually, they were frightened by this experience. The, 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 the way that Jesus was transfigured demonstrated that they were dealing with more than just a man. And that in, in seeing this, it actually reached the very limits of their language. They're shocked by what they see. They're frightened and they're terrified. In fact, in another canon, Luke, it says they actually became sleepy. That is, they started to lose consciousness. Now, what is this explaining? It's explaining that God himself is so other and so different that when he clashes with broken, sinful humans like ourselves, we almost can't take it in. I don't know if you've heard of the experience of G-Lock, but you've, most people have seen Top Gun Maverick, so I'm guessing it's probably a little bit more known than last time I spoke about it. But G-Lock is it's a gravity-induced loss of consciousness. And so when, when you hit high speeds, the human body reaches the upper limits of the kind of forces that it can manage. And so when those exceed what you can manage, the body starts to shut down. So what you get is you get grey out first, so your, your vision kind of loses colour and desaturates. Then you get blackout, but you're still conscious. You just can't see anything. You can imagine how terrifying that would be whilst you're flying a jet. Then you, get, uh, then you do get... I won't go into red out. You can look that out for yourselves. But after that, you get lock, which is loss of consciousness. So when the body has handled all the force it can and it feels like it can't handle anymore, it shuts down. Now there's something going on here that when sinful human beings encounter a holy God, it's a force so powerful that it almost breaks them apart. That as they're standing before Jesus and as he reveals what he is truly like, they can barely handle it. And they fall on their face, their hands and knees. And they go sleepy, they almost lose consciousness. What they're experiencing is something entirely other, beyond, holy, as you would describe in the Bible. That God is a, a being who is incredibly powerful. And it's terrifying to them, but then look at what happens next. In Matthew 17, 48, it says, And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here, one here for you and one for Moses and for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, have no fear. So Peter, who is known as the most impulsive disciple, witnesses what's going on, and he's like a child who's overstimulated. And so he says, Jesus, I, I'm going to make three tents. And I don't know if you noticed it, but nobody, nobody even engages with his suggestion. It's just a big, well, anyway, and they just kind of travel on. But his suggestion isn't, isn't that weird. He's struggling to respond to what's going on. And as a Jewish person, they did have a festival called the Festival of Booths, which in English is the Festival of Tents. It's not a bush doof. It's actually like a, it's a, it's a, 
a, cel- a celebration or a festival to remember the time when they wandered in the desert and they lived in tents. And because Moses and Elijah are here, these are two incredibly important prophets in the Old Testament, Peter is like, well, maybe the way I can acknowledge how incredible this is or how rare an experience this is, maybe I'll make some tents to kind of commemorate it. But actually, God responds by telling him the right way to respond to them and says, this is my own dear son, listen to him. And beyond that, what does Jesus actually say to them? He walks over to his terrified disciples and he says, don't be afraid. Now that is the best thing you want to hear from a being who's transfigured before you. To know that actually he is good and that he is safe. See, ultimately, at the bottom of our desire for these experiences that we go after, is we want a mix of fear and amazement, a brush with death that we actually survive. And I think it's an echo of a longing to encounter a God who is not tame, but is good. A God who is beyond our comprehension, who is powerful beyond our understanding, and yet is actually safe and good. The sense of fear mixed with amazement. That's the wonder that we're looking for. An experience of a God who is not tame, but is good and can be trusted. The atheist Barbara Ehrenreich is best known for her, her seminal work, which is called Nickel and Dimed. And she also wrote a memoir titled Living with a Wild God, which is a strange title for a memoir from an atheist. But she, she describes a life-changing mystical experience that she had, and it was in 1959 when she was 17 years old. She describes that she had begun a quest at the age of 13, to, um, to find the answers of, you know, what's the point of our brief existence? What's life actually about? And she was raised by atheist parents, and she felt like their worldview had somehow fallen short of what she was looking for. But, um, but her life changed when she had an experience. And I'm going to read from her account now about what she actually experienced here. She said, I found whatever I'd been looking for since the articulation of my quest. It was an experience that, as others have also said, could not be described. Here we leave the jurisdiction of language where nothing is left but the vague gurgles and surrender expressed in words like ineffable and transcendent. There were no visions, no prophetic voices or visits by totemic animals, just this blazing everywhere. Something poured into me and I into it. It was not the passive beatific merger with the all as promised by Eastern mystics. It was a furious encounter with a living substance. Ecstasy would be the word for this. But if you only acknowledge that it does not occupy the same spectrum as happiness or euphoria, that it can resemble in some ways an outbreak of violence. This was the experience that she had, that she said changed her life. Now the question beyond that for her was, having experienced something that she couldn't explain by her rational sort of worldview, could she still call herself an atheist? And she decided that she could. And that's why she continues to identify as an atheist. And the reason for it, the main reason for it, was this. She said that the most highly uh, advertised property of the Christian God is that he is good. But her experience seemed to be of something wild, unconditioned and even dangerous and violent. And she said this, therefore, could not have been some experience of what the Christians would call their God. And so from then on, she decided that whatever it was, it was hard to explain but she for herself would continue to identify as an atheist. Now it's interesting that she reflects that in that experience, 
that it couldn't possibly be the Christian God because Christians have declared their God as good and somewhat tame. But in some ways what she described there fits with what the disciples experienced, isn't it, in Matthew 17. That as Jesus was transfigured before them, it was an experience that was a mix of fear and amazement. That there was the goodness and safety of being near a good God, and yet this untameness to God that drew them even nearer. I would say that this, is, this fits with the description of what God is like. The, the, the description in the, in the Bible of fearing God is a sense of awe and wonder mixed together. That God himself is not to be tamed by us, but actually is beyond our comprehension and beyond our control. But the message and promise of the gospel is that this God is love, that he can be trusted, that our lives can be put into his hands, and that he is worthy of following. And so if you are here and searching and wondering what life really is about, can I encourage you to press in to the question of who God is and particularly the claim of the Bible that this God can be known. See, it is the case, isn't it, that we are looking for something, something more extraordinary than the everyday, something beyond just our secular frame. And more than that, it makes sense that to know a God like this is what would fill us with a sense of wonder. See, in reflecting on that chapter, Tim Keller goes on to explain the difficulty of experiencing the world as wonderful if the self is the center of reality. That it is the case that in order to be swept up in a sense of joy and thankfulness about the world around us, there needs to be a God on the other side that it speaks of. He talks about it in this way. He says, if you are being swept up in the joy and wonder by a work of art, to have a secular worldview will impoverish you to remind yourself that this feeling is simply a chemical reaction that, your, that helped your ancestors find food and escape predators and nothing more. That if the truth is, if we are just some cosmic accident and not here by any particular purpose, then when you are in the world and you see a work of art that actually blows your mind, the more you think about your secular worldview, the more it seems that that experience is just an illusion. These are just chemical reactions going off in my brain. It gives me a sense that there's some sort of transcendence, but it isn't really there. But if there is a God, then this world is a reflection of a God who is beyond measure, a God who is good, a God who is all creative, that the meaning of a waterfall is not that it tells me things about myself, but it tells me of a God whose power is beyond my remark. That it tells me of a God who can be known, who's the author of everything that is beautiful and good and wonderful. And so I would encourage you, if this question has ever struck through your mind, to press into it. But as Jacob said, we run something called Alpha regularly here at church, and the next one kicks off on October 10. It's a Monday night, it's over Zoom, and so you can just actually take the time to sit back and, and watch a presentation about who God is and what he is like. And if you want to, to press in and ask more questions, but there's really no pressure to. But I encourage you, if these thoughts have ever flashed through your mind, that it's worth not leaving on the shelf. There is a reason that we are looking for wonder. There is a reason that we are looking for more. And the claim of the scriptures is that because we were made for a relationship with our creator God, one who is beyond our understanding, one who is able to actually fill us with awe, and that the more that our lives are filled with ourselves, the smaller and more boring and uninteresting they become, but as we encounter a God who is beyond our comprehension, who made us, who loved us, and who claims to have come to earth to die and to save us, 
that this is something that fills us with a sense of wonder and goodness and peace. I'm going to pray that that would be the case. Father, we praise you that you do reveal yourself in your word. You haven't left us to guess what you are like, but you've revealed yourself. You show us what you are like in your word. Father, we praise you that you have sent Jesus, that we might understand your love for us, your goodness, and your glory. Father, we pray all of these things for the glory of your name. Amen.